Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Hey, we want to give some shout outs to our sponsors, Free Life Soap. Free Life Soap, you can now get 20% off of your order when you use the promo code RFP. Free Life Soap, check them out today at therecoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap ad and save 20% there. We also want to thank J Radio. We're coming to you live from the J Radio studios. And uh, Brian, did you finish your playlist yet? No. There it is. <laughs> I, I knew I it. I have failed. I meant to call you this week and ask you, do I send in a list of my songs along with my recording? I don't even exactly know how this works. Did you get the works. email? No, I did not. Or you haven't checked it like Wait, your text could, messages. Could you pull your phone out right now, Brian, and tell me what the number is on your email Ooh, somebody... icon at the bottom? Okay, I have 5,559 unanswered emails. No way! I have 5,013. And 647 unanswered text. What? What? Brian, you were invited to come to Trump's speech with all the other guys a couple weeks ago, and you didn't even know it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but all of those emails are going away because I'm losing that email address here in a couple weeks. So I got two weeks left at the church. Mixed emotions. Mixed emotion. I'm terribly sad but extremely excited. So it's going to be good. Brian, how about this week? 30 songs. Just put it in your notes on your phone and text it over to them. I definitely will because it's going to be the greatest playlist anyone has ever heard. I mean, yours is going to be relatively carnal. And then, you're right. You know, Nathan's is Nathan's is going to be like hipster tree hipster music. worship yeah. that no one's ever heard. It's going to be like two guys. And it's all Presbyterian music. You think I'm like an <laughs> right. indie worship type of guy? Is that how you picture me? Jesus no, is my boyfriend. You, Sit on his lap and stroke his beard. No, I picture you listening to uh, one guy with an acoustic guitar and two guys with box drums. <laughs> Writing songs as they go. Wearing chacos uh, and flowy pants. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Man, but, I don't even have to get on Twitter to get <laughs> picked on like this. this Speaking is awesome. of Twitter, Brian, you pulled out the big old spoon this week and started stirring the pot of Twitter controversy. Yeah, you know, uh, I think it's some kind of a hobby or something. But when you touch on the King James Version issue, when you touch the idol of the independent fundamental movement, you immediately are are going to be in deep water. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was just saying that King James onlyism would have been rejected by the apostles, which is true because there's no scriptural support for it. So I stated a fact, and apparently that makes a lot of people angry. And, you know, they've been calling us all kinds of names. If I can just say this, you know, real quickly, the independent Baptists constantly worry that we're lumping them in to just one massive group and that we don't admit that they're, you know, different types of people in the IFB movement, but they lump us all together. When do they give us the courtesy of separating us into different categories? Mm. That's a great point. And thinking about Twitter, you can learn a lot of good things about yourself on Twitter. You know that? Mm -hmm. Have y'all discovered this yet? I learned this week that I've made a false profession of faith. (laughs) I'm not a real Christian. I'm hashtag lost, reprobate, Mm -hmm. and yeah, many other things. So it's nice getting on there and learning about yourself. And I just want to go on the record and say it's J.C. Groves, not J.C. Graves. That ain't me. I got people texting me, and they're like, dude, what is your Twitter putting out? That's not me. That's a troll. It's Nathan, but it's a troll. It's so, not me. Right, and Brian's not fake sermons. Well, and we were also called the Beast, the False Prophet, and the Antichrist because there are three hosts of the Recovering Fundamentalist, <laughs> and then there's the Beast, the False Prophet, and the Antichrist. So I wanted to wait until the next podcast to ask you guys, Who's who? If I have to choose for myself, I'll call myself the beast. Beast mode right here. 
Come on. It's good. Of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you guys? Paper, rock, scissors. Well, I just don't want to be the Antichrist because yeah. I've already been I've already been called Judas, you know, by the sword of the Lord writer. So mm. I don't want to be Judas and Antichrist. Speaking of sword of the Lord, Hamblin had a moving experience this week and brought us out. It was utterly disgusting, but it was pretty funny <laughs> that he, man, I just dropped two Brian jokes right yes. in a row. <laughs> That was next level. But not only did we get to experience video of John Hamblin mooing, <laughs> we also got a video clip of Tony Hudson. Yeah, we did. Either with two Jacks or two Jennies, I don't know. <laughs> but he was on, you know, one of the old school bush hogs. He was being pulled by by either two Jacks or two Jennies or a Jack and a Jenny. And, uh, and you need was, to describe to our listeners what that means. Yeah, because I don't know. You don't know. Well, a jack is a male mule, and a jenny is a female mule. Maybe it was two jennies pulling a jack. Ooh, snap! <laughs> okay, I didn't say that. That was Nathan. <laughs> that was that retweet was Nathan Cravat, by the way. Uh, that was not J.C. Groves or Brian Edwards. So what was the song that fake Gonna sermon? take my horse to the old town there road. There you go. Ride. Till I can't. Sing it, Brian. See, I was thinking more like... Uh, Good morning, Captain. Good morning. I was thinking Mule Skinner blues, you know, back no in the clue. old days. Whoa, that's before my time. And mine. <laughs> oh, Bill Monroe, that's classic. He but I before- will be looking that up this week. That is, sounded pretty cool. Is that going to be on your J Radio playlist? No. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Go check out the J Radio online at jradio.com. Also, you can download the brand new app in your iPhone or Android and uh, be part of our sponsors here at the RFP. Y'all ready to get this show started? Yes, Absolutely. Sir. Let's go. In three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Puts on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hi, man. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast, episode number 27. Listen friends, what can last longer than a Faith Baptist Camp offering and a Dean McNeese message all in the same service? A container home from podlife.house can. Whether you need affordable or want absolutely adorable, let the team at podlife.house design your eco-friendly pod home for your guest house, your second house, or for the offended husband, maybe a dog house. Visit them online at podlife.house and start designing your own space and view pre-built models that are currently available. It's podlife.house house. Hey friends, we want to thank you for tuning in to the podcast. We're your hosts, JC, Nathan, and Brian, and uh, we are coming to you live from the J Radio Studios. Hey, we have a big, big month coming up in the month of October. It is a non-account October. I'm fired up about this month, guys. I am excited. It actually is getting started early in September. Starting on September the 30th, the OG that we like, that we love, everybody 
wants to know who it is, and it's not one of us. It's Fake Sermons coming on September the 30th, and then on October the 7th, we have The Wrestling Pastor. October the 14th, we got Northwest Seminary. He's going to be handing out honorary degrees to everybody. On October the 21st, The Real OG Lloyd Legalist is coming on, and we're wrapping up with the Piggly Wiggly Revival on October the 24th with The Loving Pastor. It's going to be a fun month. Who knows what content is going to come out. I'm a little nervous about it, honestly. I have no idea what to even expect, and I'm part of the show. I think it's going to be incredible. Hey, this week, guys, I ascended to the top of the mountain. When I was being Twitter abused and my feelings were being hurt, and <laughs> He's I was being, being Twitter attacked. whipped. You're so 2020. Hey, I, it happened. Lloyd Legalist actually chimed in on my post in the comments, and suddenly it felt like wind was blowing through my eight hairs, and I was hearing wind beneath my wings. It was a great moment. Man. Brian, you'll really feel the wind blowing through those eight hairs when you're wearing the Brian visor that you can yes. get at the Recovering Fundamentalist <laughs> merch store. Just go to the recoveringfundamentalist.org, get your Brian visor. Nahum O'Brien has bought a yes, Brian visor. Man. And Rob Aikens. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You've sold two Brian visors. There's two men out there wearing visors. I love those guys, and I can't wait to see pictures. And, JC, I hope you appreciate the fact that I haven't even ordered a Nate trucker cap yet, but my JC snapback is on the way, dude. I can't wait. Let's go. My daughter today, I got home from church, and she was taking a nap. Did did I send you all that picture? She's laying under her recovering fundamentalist blanket. It's her favorite blanket. It's actually really soft. It's incredible. So she was taking a nap on it, and then she woke up, and she said, I love my blanket. Well, see, that blanket proves, you know, that. We're not hard-hearted. We're really soft-hearted, and uh, we're great guys in spite of the fact that people think because we're recovering fundamentalists that uh, we're we're attacking everybody. And the thing I don't understand is you guys call me the softie of the show. You are. And uh, there were guys on Twitter this week telling me that I hate all the IFB people, even though I have family in the IFB. I've never said I hate anybody in the IFB. I hate some of the false doctrines and extra-biblical things that they teach, but I don't hate anybody. I think there's hope for everybody, and God's grace can reach anyone, even people in the IFB. You heard it here first. I think it's impossible for you to hate anybody. You're just a hopeless optimist. Thank you, Brian. I will find the tapes. All right, so tonight, moving on with our episode, we are excited to have the pastor of Faithway Church in Westchester, Ohio, the land of no college football, Coming all the way down there. He's had little sleep, but he's in the studio with us tonight. We have Ken Scop in the studio with us. Ken, welcome to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Thanks, guys. This has been an enlightening behind-the-scenes look. You guys need a documentary. We uh, don't know what we're doing. Yeah. We're an hour in, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm thankful you guys can edit. Uh, I'm sure I'll say some things need to be edited out, but thank you for the uh, opportunity to be on. Hey, bro, thanks for joining us, man. This is a big deal for us, and you and I have had behind-the-scenes conversation. JC ate dinner with us, and uh, I'm excited about this episode. This is a big deal for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. If anybody knows about the fundamentalist world, I would say it's you. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, uh, I got to uh, have a front-row seat to uh, the Hiles Anderson you know, circle of fundamentalism. And there's certainly, you know, you kind of label all the camps, right, by the college oh, yeah. that's associated or the name. And uh, so being uh, Jack Hiles' grandson, I got to see um, the, those those later years of ministry. And then um, when my dad, Jack Scott, took over, well, we uh, <laughs> we had some ups and some, uh, some downs. So 
uh, I've seen a lot, and I'm thankful for the good, which we'll cover, and and uh, certainly um, look forward to just talking through some of the things that we've experienced. You know, the reason I love having guys like you on the podcast, people just don't understand that the front row seat, as you referenced, gives you a completely different view. The inside look, you actually go home with the pastor. Uh, that changes everything, and so why don't you just share your story with us and with our listeners tonight? And I know that they're going to love hearing what God gives you to say just as much as, as the three of us are. Yeah. I mean, I find myself being defensive sometimes still when people are talking about um, their view on Jack Hiles, because I'm like, I don't, I don't think, you know, but at the same time, I think growing up, I was criticized for being critical of certain things that I'd seen. And I felt like I could say, so, uh, well, let, let's back up. I mean, I, I was born in 84. I think I'm the youngest guy in the show here, so Definitely. that's good. By two years. Good job. Awesome. Um, but don't have the hair that Nathan has, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm with the bald group. But Welcome. I uh, born in 84, and, and a lot of things are already happening. We, we grew up hearing about battles. Uh, these certain scandals or tough times were referred to as battles, um, and 84 was a battle because um, my uncle had been kind of, kind of outed and and so there was a, a massive scandal going on, it seemed like. Of course, I don't remember much of it. And, uh, you know, growing up, I, I spent a good amount of time with uh, my grandparents. Uh, you know, after every service, evening service, we'd go into my Grandpa Hal's office, and he was just a great grand, grandfather to me. Mm. Um, and that's how I knew him. He, you know, he loved his church. He loved uh, the people that were around him. Uh, he was fiercely loyal, and he expected loyalty in return. Um, and it was a unique time. To me, it was the epicenter of Christianity. You know, that was the, I didn't know anything else. And, yeah. and the way people talked about it, I mean, my grandfather was single-handedly fighting communism and liberalism and <laughs> modernism and yeah. feminism and yeah, you know, so, uh, and, 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 you know, was a dynamic speaker for sure, running around, kicking microphone stands while he preached. And so that was just, you, you know, you grow up seeing that and loving it. And, and my home was a, was a healthy home. My dad and mom modeled a good marriage for me. Uh, the entire time that I was living in the house. And so I, I loved it. You know, growing up, I loved it. I loved that they had this song, There's Something Different in the Air at Sunday, and it was electric, the atmosphere, and pastor schools were, were, and you just believed that, you know, the whole nation kind of depended on this church to stay healthy and strong. This was the bastion mm. of not just fundamentalism, but the future of America. So, you know, the good old blend of patriotism and Jesus um, wow. that, that we had, uh, you know, throughout. And so, I certainly love of country was there, and that was my upbringing. And when I was 16, my grandpa passed away. And so really all my memories of him are as a grandfather and then just preaching on the platform and then seeing him in his office. And obviously he traveled a lot, was busy, so I wouldn't say we were extremely close. It was closer to my other, other side of the family as far as grandparents. But, um, yeah, I never saw anything personally that, um, that in my mind disappointed me about him. Um, but I knew of rumors and scandals and it was all stuff that had happened before, you know, before I was six years old and my grandparents, they were both, they were happily married the entire time that, um, that they were alive, that I, that I was a part of their life. And then my dad became the pastor and, you know, you start taking a kind of more analytical look, I think, uh, because I was a lot, obviously living in his house and seeing the church. And so for the first time, I think some of the, the rose colored lenses were taken off because, uh, it wasn't just the church, it was the movement, um, because as soon as he became pastor, all the guys who didn't immediately had their opinions, and I was fiercely loyal, fiercely defensive. I was positive they got the right man in, 
so I, I, I watched kind of him just get creamed for just being the next guy. And I saw um, a spirit of idolatry among uh, a lot of people who, you know, their God had died. And, and of course, certainly they wouldn't have voiced it that way, but their tribute to conferences they held in his name uh, said otherwise. And uh, so it was a pretty, pretty strange time. And, and I became, that was my first time just kind of being disillusioned with this brand of Christianity. I mean, uh, I, I wasn't a, a, a great Bible reader as a teenager, but it sure seemed like the love and grace and unity that was called for by the apostles uh, was missing uh, amongst these, these brethren, people who I'd seen when I was 15 come in and preach and just praise and applaud the ministry were not critical of the same ministry because mm. they, um, in my view anyways, they were quite jealous and uh, mean-spirited. And so uh, I was defensive of, of my dad, defensive of our church, and, um, you know, I had, I had my, own, my own stuff going on. Um, and I was certainly too proud and too focused on the wrong things, but that was, that was kind of my upbringing, uh, through, through my grandpa Hal's ministry and then my dad's. Um, when I got out of college, I, um, married my high school sweetheart and I'd been told I couldn't marry her until I got out of college. So I got my four year degree in two years and I was just uh, in a hurry to, to get together with her and be married. And right away I realized I'd married an awesome person and I was a terrible person. Uh, I just had a lot of pride. And, and, and honestly, I'd been given a heart for, for the Lord um, from, from what I had seen in, from my view. Now, I've heard so many stories of people that were in the ministry at the same time going through the same system I was who didn't get that perspective. Um, but I saw behind the scenes, and my grandpa that I saw was a man of prayer. My dad in our home was a man of prayer. And so I had a heart for God. And I, when, I, when I got married, I was done with college. I, could, I, could, I was being offered a job in the ministry, and they were, what do you want to do? And I didn't have any vision. I just wanted to get married. And here I was married, and, man, I was just disappointed in myself. I was supposed to teach the Bible, and, and I just didn't know the Bible, didn't know the Word. But I had a hunger for it. And so that really strangely started to bring me away from the brand of Christianity that, um, that I'd been brought up on, though. I mean, I was reading guys who weren't King James only. And um, just being moved, and I was discovering people like the early church fathers, and they weren't independent Baptists. And um, I was reading about revivals that took place in history, and just getting hungrier for God. So it took me through just a, a season of seeking God. Um, I, I didn't do it the right way, and, and I've told everybody about it, so I've broken all the rules that Jesus gave. But I went through a 40-day fast uh, as a 21-year-old, and that's when I lost all my hair. Uh, it went quick. <laughs> And my poor wife, we're like just a few months into marriage, and I'm like, honey, I know I'm a pathetic husband, so I've got to figure this out. And so she would eat in the corner and, like, hide food from me while I just, like, miserably, like, endured. And I did it all the wrong way. I didn't even know how to really seek God. But, you know, that that was just a part of my world. I was hungry for God, and it led it led to a little season of revival for a lot of people in our church. And so that's that's a part of the church that's that doesn't make and a part of, part of my life that, that no one ever talks about that— you know, it was a church that was seeking after God, and there was a lot of people who were hungry. We had all-night prayer meetings. We had people being saved, and, we, and, and it was a really, really unique time in, uh, in my life. I, I started working in the ministry. I went to the college and began teaching at Hiles Anderson, and I just saw some holes. There was no hermeneutics class. 
you know, we're training preachers. How do you study the Bible? Um, the, the class on prayer had been dropped, so I got to teach a class on prayer. I got to teach hermeneutics. I'm, like, totally unqualified to teach these things. I, I remember when I got my first schedule, I went on the Fight and Fundamental Forum, and I was getting creamed for not being qualified. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, you're right. I'm not qualified. That's um, hilarious. And so I'd read about it. I had an anonymous account on, a, on the old Sharper Iron Forum. It was oh, defensive of the ministry. I mean— uh, but I was reading for the first time uh, critiques of the ministry where uh, I was I was like you know that that seems valid as uh, as I look and it does it does seem imbalanced in certain areas and uh, and so that that seeking after God and then kind of taking a, a critical look so but I was I was convinced that we were going to change we were going to evolve and move forward in into the future and and had a lot of great conversations with coworkers and friends and my father as well and. There were there were flaws that he recognized and changes he thought that needed to be made, and so uh, after a few years t- teaching at the college, he he made a statement just trying to soften the uh, the stance on double inspiration of the King James, and boy that was that was war number two. About the time that the the guys who didn't become the next pastor of the church let their jealousy kind of settle and got tired of throwing stones at him, yeah, he uh, he gave him new ammunition with um with, with with this view on on the this common sense view this historical view on a, on translations. And, and, and really didn't go as far as, as he should have. And I've been asked to, uh, I was asked to teach at the summit. And again, I was way in over my head, but I was reading stuff and I was bringing it to the committee and I was like, can I say this? No, you can't say that. And, uh, so I, I was kind of forced to just, um, you know, not forced, but was, it was recommended to me that it, this is what you have to teach on. And this is, these are the parameters of your subject material. And so again, that was disappointing to me that, you know, we're an institution that's centered around truth. And we got a hold of this line because we've already lost so many students. Mm. And so here we are defending something that's indefensible and talking to people who already have an indefensible position who aren't going to change and are just going to make matters worse. And right about that time, the recession hit. And, you know, I watched the uh, I watched my dad just just fall apart. I watched a flame out, you know, a burnout. And I was ambitious. You know, I was on the uh, I was on the rise. I was traveling a little bit and preaching and in the fundamental world. You know, that's what it is. You yeah, know? yeah. You sign some Bibles, get some love offerings, and and uh, preach to some teens. Sure. So, I was I was doing it. Growing up, that's what I thought you're supposed to do. I mean, my grandpa traveled. You know, twice, two meetings, two or three meetings a week. My dad was traveling uh, 30, 40 meetings a year or, or more, depending what time, what number he said at the time. And <laughs> you know, so I, I I was doing that, and I was ambitious. Um, and and had kind of again lost my heart for the Lord that I that I'd been given at 21 and more just on the corporate track. I wanted to rise up. I eventually became the vice president at the college and I was young. I was a vice president and I had just a ton of pride and I was so proud and ambitious. I didn't see what was happening, you know, in my, in my family. And, um, you know, I think it's one of, one of the struggles that I had after everything happened was, you know, why didn't I see this? So about 11 years into ministry, into pastoring, my dad, uh, there was a youth conference going on and, um, I was sitting on this, on the platform, someone was preaching and then someone came and grabbed me and brought me out. And long story short, I, I just learned that there was, we had limited information. We didn't know exactly the extent of it, but we knew that, uh, there needed to be an investigation. And so, uh, my mom and I went into his office and told him he couldn't preach that night. He's supposed to close the conference out. And after the conference ended, he disappeared and security didn't know where he was. And so I sat down with church leadership and said, this is what I know. And, and I'd love to say I did it because I know this is the right thing to do. But I think I did it out of fear for him and 
just not not knowing where else right. to turn. But I'm I'm thankful that's the way it went. Yeah, you know, and and I'm, I'm thankful for those that, who are around me who who were wise enough to say we need to you know we need to be honest. And I, I had always known there'd been you know I'd, 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 honestly I'd read more about it online than been told by my own family, but I knew there'd been cover ups for for relatives in the past, and and my dad had been against that. And he had he had strongly in the early years of pastoring said we don't cover things up we need to apologize for things and whether he went far enough or not uh, doesn't matter but at at that point I knew that we needed to you know we needed to for his sake to be honest and say we got to get to the bottom of this and so there was a week long investigation and um, we went out of town uh, my sister and I and our families went out of town and we got back um, my dad called and you know that was a bad day <laughs> and. Um, you know, that position and the way it was set up, the way the church leadership was set up, he was, he was it. Yeah. And he ran everything, and there was no, no one who could tell him no. And um, even if you have a heart of gold, without that accountability that the scriptures, I think, clearly lay out, then mm. that, that, uh, that power corrupts. And the pressure of the recession and the pressure of other things eventually led to him making some decisions that led to horrible horrible consequences you know and and so we went through this little season of you know mainstream media calling and and at the time pierce morgan was a cnn host he was calling jay leno was doing jokes about my dad online it was a really bad bad time um uh and um you know the lord really prepared me for it with with two things one about a year before um my prayer life changed and something weird that no one could ever really explain to me in the ministry was that that the Lord just led me to just cry and grieve in, in private while I prayed. And I had no idea why I was crying. It was like the Lord was preparing me. I remember asking some guys who I thought, you know about prayer. Why is every time I pray, I cry for an hour and like, I feel like I'm going blind. I'm crying so hard. And, and I, I don't know, but, but it was just like God broke my heart. And when everything happened, the Lord said, um, you know, I've been, you know, I've been preparing you to go through this and I didn't know how to go through it. I don't think, I don't necessarily think that we went through that season the right way, but I knew God. And so it wasn't like my, my God had died, mm. which it was for some people. And that, that was the way the ministry had been sure. set up. Sure. And then some people that I'd read, I read a book by Philip Yancey called Disappointment with God um, two weeks before my dad was fired. And, Whoa. and as I was reading it, I'm like, this isn't for me right now. Whoa. But I just kept reading. And um, he just talks about the different times in life where it seems like God lets you down. And God hurts you for some reason. And it talk, it's about suffering emotionally. He has a book on physical suffering. And that book just, man, it just ripped my heart open. And uh, it was exactly what I needed. So really, God just helped me, despite me, <laughs> despite what was going on. Yeah. And, um, and so you know, we went through this season of, uh, I'm working at the college still. We're opening up. And then like my dad, who was running everything, now he's just home. And we're waiting to see what's going to happen. And ultimately... There was a, a plea deal, and uh, he, the plea deal said 10 years. The judge gave him more than the plea deal, and, you know, um, he was guilty, you know, and, and, and so he, he got what, uh, what the sentence says. And, you, you know, there's other cases. You can see other cases around. People got a lot less for what, what might be more, but what happened happened, and um, I found myself, like, furious at him and then defending him to people, you know, like yeah. that, that just – love yeah. for for your you know love for my dad and uh, at the same time just absolutely ticked off at what's what we're walking through now we're walking through bankruptcy we're walking through taking care of 
of my mom and nothing set up and she's on her own. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, that was a, a really, really crazy time where God was really real. And, and, and I've, I've since talked to people and said, when God, when God really hurts somebody, uh, if they'll just look for him, he'll be closer than he is to the normal, the average person. You know, when God hurts you or allows you to be hurt, I should say, um, you know, when sin hurts you, when the enemy hurts you, yeah. uh, and, and the Lord sees that he's allowed that to come in, um, he's going to walk close to you. And, you know, I think that's, that was such an encouragement to me and, and he did, it didn't mean that, that life didn't hurt, you know, for that season. And, and from there for me, you know, I was kind of done, you know, in the ministry, I stayed for a year and a half longer and, and very thankful for it. so many hundreds of friends who were kind to me. The church was kind to me, but honestly, we didn't say anything to the church. Like it was just, I'd go to church and they'd look at me like, are you going to talk and tell us what happened? Because there was really no release of information. There was just what the press was saying. And there, because there was a trial, there was very little the church leadership could say. So the church was just frozen. You know, what do we do? And, you know, I think it's by God's grace that they're still open, honestly, mm-hmm. and, uh, and seeing people saved. So after that, though, we, uh, we left to uh, start a church. Uh, for some reason, no one was taking my resume. Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> uh, and God just led us. And for two years, we started church, and we just tried to survive. Wow. You know, I'd like to say I had a vision and knew exactly what I wanted, but we, we didn't realize how much grieving we had to do. We didn't realize how much of an identity crisis we had to go through. We yeah. didn't realize um, just the toxicity that was in our life. And, and God just began to strip that away. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken or have to beg for bread. And that was it right there. I was only righteous because of Jesus. And I was just, I was lost in, in who I was and, um, you know, a precious wife and a patient little group of people. And after two years, God gave us a new, a new start with our church. Wow. And, um, yeah, that's the short version. Man, that's incredible. Can I just ask this? How did studying hermeneutics change your view of, of Scripture, what you had believed, and then what you currently believed, because you were diving in to that hermeneutical study. How did that start to even transform you then? Yeah, hermeneutics, prayer, and spiritual warfare were three courses that really revolutionized my walk with the Lord and my outlook on the Christian faith. I should add a fourth. We had a class called The Fundamental Man, which was just talking about my grandpa, and they gave me the class, and I turned it into church history. So those four courses really helped me. Uh, I thought it was really weird to have two credits about Jack Heil's life and no credits on church history. So I changed that course too. So, uh, but hermeneutics, um, just you, you're starting to read the rules of how Scripture should be interpreted, and then you're not seeing that take place in the average message that you're hearing. Um, at least that was my experience. And good people— who, uh, who were working like crazy and burning a candle at both ends to, to you know, for a, a small salary are being asked to preach. And they're taking a verse and just running with it. And we had many, many opportunities to preach, you know, because you only have one spiritual gift you use, uh, and that's teaching. Everyone else uses serving. And sometimes when it's really unhealthy, the serving is for the teacher and not for the Lord. So that was my experience. So, you know, just seeing how to handle the word, and then, and then that leads you to to listening to, to preachers who handle the word skillfully. Exactly. And they're starting to talk about doctrines that have never been explored. They're starting to talk about things um, that you've always just heard spoken of in a poor way. The first time I met a Calvinist who loved the Lord and actually was a soul winner, 
that was a that was a mind blowing experience because in many cases when a Calvinist was mentioned, he was mentioned as you know there was a straw man. He was just a terrible person uh, mm-hmm. who um, you know gave a, a horrible picture of God. And so meeting people who love the Lord, hearing guys like John Piper um, preach and, and hearing a healthy theology and, and preaching that that was a that was definitely a, a journey out. And their hermeneutics uh, really helped me. Uh, spiritual warfare was a warning to me because I saw a lot of things that were not dealt with in the ministry. And so I saw strongholds that were there. And again, it, it, looking back, you know, I felt like, man, there were strongholds that I should have seen as well. You know, hindsight, uh, looking back, I, I could see those things. So yeah, so the, those those courses, it was funny. Being asked to teach a course you're not qualified for, but being given the liberty to just get whatever material you wanted, um, you know, really helped me. And God led me to some some great stuff that that prepared me for um, what was going to happen, but also, you know, really wanted to move at the time. I really wanted to move the college forward and, and many others there did as well, as far as the academics, there was some strengths there, but, but there was, there were some holes, some significant holes that I saw. And, and even more since I've been out that, you know, when you're teaching on how to be a pastor, you've never pastored before. Um, you know, I think I could go back and, and, and <laughs> teach some, teach some things that would be a little more relevant and helpful. <laughs> That's a powerful statement right there. Yes, it is. Those who can't do teach, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Ken, I want to thank you for sharing your story because that's very personal. And obviously you've had to walk through years of healing. And you've been transparent enough with us to say, I'm still going through that process. It's, It's an ongoing process. But I want to say to you, and I think speaking for our listeners and speaking to our listeners as well, this is a great reminder that your family are real people. Like it's all, I've always heard Jack Hiles and I have, you know, strong differences with how he chose to preach. I think of who slew these and how he butchered that text. Uh, my opinion, <laughs> I know Brian, that's his favorite sermon, but anyway, <laughs> I actually but, called it the worst abuse of the pulpit I'd ever witnessed. Fun fact, Brian, I could give you better examples. Brian. <laughs> fun fact, Brian's tattoo says who slew these. <laughs> That's that's really funny. But I, I think of those things and I can talk about it. And I've been on social media and even on the podcast, we've mentioned your family members' names, uh, multiple. <laughs> and it's just a reminder to me that, that you're a real person, that we don't want to exploit your family. And I'm honestly, Ken, I want to confess this to you. I'm convicted of how I've spoken about your family, because if that were my family, it, I wouldn't want people just throwing the names out there and laughing and secondhand jokes. So to you, thinking back about the podcast, I'm like, wow, how have I used his family members' names? Because you are loyal and you do love your family, even people that have let you down and even people that have hurt you. So for me, this is humanizing you and your family. I think a lot of people that that are in leadership and that God has given vast spheres of influence and not to just not just influence but giftings your grandfather your dad you you guys have some very incredible gifts that god has given you and when you have a lot of gifts pride can set in and things can i know even in my life it can take me in a bad direction when i receive praise and things like that so i just want to say to you that uh as I sit here and put myself in your shoes, and I think our listeners should do this as well, that uh, your grandfather's name, your dad's name shouldn't just be a byword. Like we should all take notice. The Bible says, 
take heed, he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. And we're all capable of Mm -hmm. the worst sin. There's not one of us in this room that is above what Jack Scott did. Yeah. Like I say, we're all one decision away from stupid. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really good way to put it. I appreciate it. I, you know, I, growing up, the stories they told became kind of legendary in our world. And, um, you know, when I was 21, I remember jumping online and reading things and, and all of a sudden for the first time, I wondered if the stories that had inspired me and that, that my grandfather told were true. And it, it helped me, you know, seek after God and find him for myself. And, um, yeah, there was, that was the first time when I was looking at the, uh, the messages he preached and, and listening with a little more of an analytical ear. And um, I was still very defensive at that point. I don't listen to—I have, I have three messages of his that I, I listen to. Um, <laughs> the only one I'll mention is, is this kind, and he preached it often when he was very young. And um, so and even that, there's some stories where I'm like, I don't, did that really happen? And, uh, and, and unfortunately, there were stories I heard my dad tell growing up that <laughs> I found out were not true. And so it leads you to a crisis of faith a little bit, and you're like, wait— that this was used as the clincher before yeah, yeah. everyone, mm. these guys surrendered to preach. So wait a minute, <laughs> if this story's not true, or wait, you just preached Jack Van Impe's sermon verbatim. Oh my! Um, <laughs> and that's the sugar stick of America, America, right there. Um, that was uh, th- those were those were times for me when I had to take a step back and 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 really want to be authentic. And if if this is fake, and obviously when you see someone that you adore in the spiritual world, let you down and you want to throw the whole thing out. So authentic became a key word, uh, for me, you know, I I don't know, you know, if I'll ever have the influence, not numerically, but that's not what it, to me, what matters, what what matters is that I can walk through this life with the Lord and it be real. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the things I question having looked back on your circle of fundamentalism and our circle of fundamentalism, you know, when your grandpa was up preaching, in a room full of people, regardless of what he said, they were going to cheer. Yeah. You know, it was, it was less like a church service, more like a rally. And at the center of the rally, there was your grandfather. And so all of these people are screaming and they're yelling and you can go back and watch those services and you can see the louder the crowd yelled and screamed and shouted, the more emboldened he became. So I think, for a man, that's a toxic environment because it almost causes a man to lose sight of, first of all, all the glory belongs to God. I mean, let's be honest. It's a lot easier for us to have big heads than it is enlarged hearts. We're easily overwhelmed by our own pride. And public sin is always the result of the secrets of our hearts. So when you look back and you, you know now what happened and how things went. Do you believe that, first of all, your grandfather ultimately passed on to your dad an unhealthy model and an unhealthy environment? Yeah. So when my dad took the ministry over, there was a lot of talk of team. And I think there was a recognition there. Um, I don't know if it was a thorough enough recognition, and it certainly wasn't followed through with, but there was a recognition that, one— Everything he did had to be filtered through what did what did Brother Hiles believe, and then everything he did was critiqued nationally by our little world 
um, our little bubble of Hiles Anderson brand fundamentalism, Pasture School brand fundamentalism, by what did Jack Hiles say? And that just that just eventually led to problems. I mean, the entire Bible battle that that really was a huge marker in my dad's ministry that really hurt him a lot was because we published a book posthumously after my after my grandfather's death uh, of sermons on the King James, and they never the book should never have been published, but you know we need the money, mm-hmm. and it, it was it, it was just rough. I mean, it, it, you know there was things he said. He preached a sermon on the incorruptible seed, and anybody not saved from the King James. Um, right. You know, and he had to retract, you know, 25,000 cassette tapes were sent out to the pastor school list, retracting that message after he preached it because he, he was, you know, he was called out for it. But there wasn't any accountability within the ministry. And it was just it was just a man came in. And I see this in the sales world. I see this in the business world all the time. Uh, somebody builds a business and they build it beyond their ability to lead it. And they've got to stretch and grow with it. And Jack Hiles built. He was an amazing uh, church builder in Texas, mm-hmm. the the fastest growing church in America, one of the world's largest churches, and then moving to Ham and the church is running 700 and then it's running thousands. And I've talked to my mom at length about the health of the church in the 60s. And she said his emphasis was on other things. His emphasis was on the word and the Holy Spirit. And I haven't gone back and listened to his messages with a critical ear, nor do I care to, but the church was growing. And I think there was a blessing from God in that in that era. And I'm sure there were things he said at that time that were wrong. And I know there, I know that that's just that's just the nature of, of leadership. But as the ministry grew, um, the the structure of accountability, the the leadership structure didn't grow. And you know, hiring an assistant pastor because your church is growing doesn't mean you 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 broadened your leadership. You know, and and so just analyzing church structure, there was there wasn't elders. The deacons did not provide accountability. The assistant pastors did not have the the level of authority that they needed to to be a team, and so now here's a man that's traveling two three times a week, and he's not healthy spiritually. He's going through seasons of struggle in his marriage. This is my grandpa I'm talking about, and and he's he's not no one's holding him accountable. And if he loses his temper in a staff meeting, no one holds him accountable. And so to me, one it's a kind of a miracle that. He continued, from what I saw privately, he continued to love the Lord um, because of that, you know, the last 20 years, there was no accountability. I think his ministry really changed when John R. Rice died. Uh, that was his dad, his spiritual father. And so, you know, you say what you want about, about that brand of, of fundamentalism, but the two of them traveled a lot, and, and he considered himself very close to Dr. Rice. And he never made an issue out of King James onlyism. He wasn't a King James onlyist. He he was at the first meeting for the new King James version. So apparently he was open enough for people to say like, "Hey, he might be a good person to have on the committee." So he and Curtis Hudson were there for the the first committee meeting of whether to translate the uh, the new King James. Was that Thomas Nelson? And and you know he made a joke about it later how he never wanted to have a part. But he was not a strong King James onlyist. He used other translations. He was ecumenical. He was cooperative. He was, um, you know, ingenuitive. I mean, he, he influenced Jerry Falwell. And, you know, whether whether he had as much influence over him as not, he set up his Sunday schools. Uh, Tommy Barnett credits him in his biography, uh, the Dream Center in Los Angeles, in his own pastor school. And he says that one of the two men that influenced the ministry the most was Jack Hiles. So in the, in the 50s and 60s, he was transforming the landscape of certain aspects of America and, and of, the wor- of, of the, that Christian world. And and so I look back at that with joy because I think there's going to be fruit that remains in heaven eternally because of what he did. And I think that when people just, you know, grab a YouTube clip of, of a bad sermon and he's got plenty, um, 
then you know they they don't realize you know they they are labeling a man by a bad sermon and don't realize that there is an enormous fruit that remains but yeah there wasn't the accountability so the ministry outgrew you know his accountability and you know there there obviously wasn't going to be an eldership with that style and the deacons were not empowered enough so when my dad took that at first he didn't have the credibility because he was new and young but as he grew the church grew they built an auditorium that was too much money and and but but building it was a huge monumental thing and when that church building was the auditorium was finished and they moved in you started to see a change one you saw financial pressures because we borrowed so much money and then the recession and you also saw like now this was this was my dad's church you know and and he started taking more ownership and because of that he started losing accountability and so when the pressures came and no one had the answers you know i think the numbers that i've heard and been told were there was you know tens of millions, about $20, $25 million in the bank. And then one year later after recession, that's gone. And there's a deficit that wasn't there before of about 25 million. You've got this massive swing. And this is, you know, five years before my dad was fired. So he's bearing this in that there was no structure uh, really set up. And, you know, I see that. And as a son, you know, it doesn't justify anything. You know, you got to recognize the sinfulness of just, of, of not setting up the church right now, leading the right, which is, which, which is ultimately going to lead to other sins that are going to hurt the church. And I saw that up front. So that was a long answer to your question. Yes, um, I did see, uh, you know, the, the, the man-centered focus. And I heard that growing up, and I thought, I don't believe that. But I also absolutely adored both of those men right. and adored the men that they lifted up. You know, Lee Robertson, Tom Malone, Curtis Hudson, to meet them and have them sign my Bible and, and get to share a meal with them. Uh, that, was, that was awesome. And, and so I certainly had those heroes, but I, I don't think that because I knew those men personally, because I knew my grandpa and dad personally closely, it was not hard for me to separate the two like it might've been for other people who didn't see behind the scenes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I mentioned earlier that on one side, I do want your family humanized and I do want to look through this and putting ourselves in your place, but I also don't want to minimize sin. And you just... You just touched on that. Uh, could you speak to people in our audience who have been affected by abuse and people who have been on the other side of what your dad was convicted of and, and speak into that? Because I know your heart and where you stand on this. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing for me when someone told me one time um, to pray for justice to be done because that was just not something on my list of things to pray for. And, and there needs to be justice for the victim. Um, it, you know, too many churches are letting attorneys run their church. Yeah. And, you know, we trust the Lord with the church until we start worrying about our name. And, and mm. ultimately what, what some people, not everyone, it's a big ministry, so I don't, I'm not painting everyone's attitude, but, but what many people at, in my home church began to believe was they started to treat the church like it was this great tradition, kind of like Notre Dame football. Yeah. You know, we've got yeah. to save the tradition. We've got a bad coach, so let's get a new coach in and let's restore the brand. Wow. And it became a lot more about restoring the brand. And, you know, man, my dad just blew that up. You know, you can't restore that brand. And, and you know, you, you better make it about Jesus because you try to save the brand and make it about another man. It's, you know, it's not going to work. Mm. And, you know, so but that, that was 
that was, I think, a lot of the reasoning behind. And, and that was the advice that was given as well. I mean, the, the attorneys and the organizations in the 50s and 60s, that was the culture. And that's why we see it with Paige Patterson. We see it with Southern, old school Southern Baptists because that was the line. And, and so it wasn't something that my grandfather thought of himself, like, we're going to defend the church. This is our strategy. But it was the common strategy of we got to protect the church's name and we don't want to drag the name of Jesus through the mud. But you're destroying individuals. And I thought Jesus, he left the 99 and went for the one. Wow, and so, yeah. you know, I don't think he was worried about his name when he became sin for us and despising the shame, he endured the cross. And so we've worried too much about protecting his name, but we're worrying on the wrong end. If we're going to protect his name, where's the accountability? Yeah. If we're going to protect his name, then let's throw out the Very traditions of, of celebrity church. You know, we can't criticize televangelists and then have college head slash pastor um, heroes and in our movement, every movement's got them. Every movement's got their celebrities. But if we're talking about the movement we grew up in, then let's just be honest. We care too much about the name uh, that's underneath that pastor, president, wow. chancellor, letterhead. And, and so we've become obsessed, and we're setting them up for failure, and we are feeding their ego. And we're also feeding our flesh because we're being distracted from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're being distracted from a healthy relationship. We're glorying in somebody else. We're adoring somebody else. And we're not worshiping Jesus. And we also criticize what worship is as well, but that's another rabbit trail. Um, but, you know, I think that that's an that's a enormous mess in, in the movement. You have left the independent fundamental Baptist movement. You are no longer in that movement. Is that correct? Yes. And so from your perspective, what would you say are the fundamental flaws of the fundamentalist movement? Well, family, we're going to have to take a pause right there and come back next week with part two of Ken Scop. We want to thank our sponsors here at the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast, Free Life Soap, Pod Life House, and J Radio. Also, our patrons of Patreon, you guys are incredible, and we are so thankful for each and every one of you. So thank you for giving, and if you would like to be a Patreon, you can go to therecoveringfundamentalist.org, click on the Patreon tab, and become a patron of the Recovering fundamentalist podcast i'm looking forward to part two of this episode next wednesday and so you be sure to be here and join us next week all right y'all have a great week be sweet peace thanks for listening to the recovering fundamentalist podcast be sure to stop by our social media facebook instagram and twitter give us a follow also go to our website recoveringfundamentalist.org that's recoveringfundamentalist.org there you can find recovering fundamentalist swag you can get your t-shirts and hats you can join our ex-fundy community see where we're going to be having some meetups it's the recoveringfundamentalist.org be sure to join us next time for the recovering fundamentalist podcast <laughs>